intention of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 Please be seated. All right. Welcome to Incarnation this morning. I want to tell you a little story to start out. There was a guy named Sean Kane who was an intern at Incarnation who uh, woke up this morning with a really bad fever. So please pray for him and pray for his last-minute preacher replacement. <laughs> I, uh, I, what, this, this is the extent in which I've prepared for you this morning. This is how much I love you. Now, I love you so much more than this, but this is all I could do, all right? What I did is I knew that we were preaching homilies and not sermons this summer, so I scanned through the homilies that I preached in chapel at seminary. <laughs> and I looked at the titles, and I glanced for like five minutes, and I found one that I thought, hey, this really fits sort of like with what I preached last time and with what we're talking about in catechesis hour. So I literally haven't even read it through. <laughs> when we changed the scripture readings, that's why you have uh, two songs there. Um, uh, and, you, all right, all right, let's do this, let's do this. Um, I'm going to be preaching out of Psalm 41, verses 1 through 4. Could you uh, turn me down just a little bit? Um, please turn to Psalm 41, which you just heard Cassidy read. Uh, page 469 in your pew Bible, and I really want to focus on verses 1 through 4. Um, so, Psalm 41, verses 1 through 4 says this, this is a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. For I have sinned against you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a beautiful psalm, and uh, I particularly want to focus on the first four verses. Let me give you a little bit of a context. When I uh, preached this message in chapel, there was, there was something kind of going on in our seminary, and I was trying to preach into it a little bit. So there were some people who say, hey, the scriptures give all these commands, these important commands to make sacrifices, to live and to seek to bless the poor. And then there are other people in the seminary that say, we don't want to hear anything about what we should do or the commands or whatever. We just want to hear that we're saved by grace alone through the cross of Jesus. And what I really wanted to do in this sermon is sort of tell the, tell the camps, hey, you're both right. <laughs> the scriptures say that we're saved by grace through the cross of Christ, through his finished work. But then we're saved unto deeds of love. Mm. And that both of these things are actually really important. And so the title of this message is Kickball, the Poor, and the Gospel of Grace. All right. Now imagine for a moment that you're back in elementary school and your class has just been released for recess. And the most zealous and athletic seven-year-old runs and grabs the kickball, and the rest of the kids follow him out onto the field. But before the game even gets started, one of the teachers, the fun one, who all the kids love, one of the teachers excuses himself from the other adults and runs over to join the game. 
Now, I don't know about some of you, but I don't know about you, but when the cool teacher comes and joins the game, yeah. it just, that's exciting. I mean, yeah. it, it jazzes it up. It's, hey, now, now something official is happening here. All right, I want to play some kickball, right? Okay, so the teacher and this zealous athletic kid are, who went and grabbed the ball are captains, and the kid starts by picking his best friend, who just so happens to be the second most athletic kid. <laughs> But for some reason, the teacher uses his first pick on the slowest, least coordinated, most kickball-challenged person on the field. You know who you are. <laughs> anyway, he doesn't make a big deal about it. He just picks him and gives him a high five, and the kid runs behind him. Now, here's the question. Did the cool teacher choose the slowest kid because he loved him more than all the others? Or rather, did he choose the slowest kid to demonstrate a new set of values? By choosing to dignify and show love to the least, the teacher has actually raised the value of every child out on the field. In a similar way, I would argue, God shows a preference for the poor throughout the scriptures. It's undeniable, guys. Have you been reading your Bibles? For example, regarding God's election of Israel, Deuteronomy 7 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. The Lord wants to convince them in Deuteronomy 7, look, it's not because you were awesome. It's because I chose you. It's not because you are the most righteous. It's because I chose you. It's not because you are the most numerous and most likely to succeed. It's because I chose you. I set my affection on you. Israel was the slowest kid, the underdog. And by showing the world that the least is the object of his affection, it gives everyone else confidence that they might be able to have value in God's eyes too. Do you understand? Indeed, God even promises his judgment upon Israel if they turn around and start to bully other people, which is exactly what happened. All right, so number one, kickball. Now number two, the poor. Turning now with me to Psalm 41. The first half of verse one announces the beatitude. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. But how is the one who considers the poor blessed? What does that blessing look like? I think this psalm actually gives us two answers to this question. The first is explicit, and the second is implicit. The explicit answer is spelled out in the next couple of verses. Here's what happens to the one who considers the poor. It says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers her. The Lord protects her and keeps her alive. So they're blessed with protection. Those who consider the poor are blessed with protection God says he is called blessed in the land. They're blessed in their reputation. Honestly, uh, the new pope of the Roman Catholic Church, I've never seen a pope that has this good of a reputation among those outside of the church. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't give any account for why that would be the case other than the fact that he considers the poor. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the reason why the world likes him? Yeah. It says, you do not give her up to the will of her enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. 
In his illness, you restore him to full health. So they're also blessed with physical health. The Lord's like, I like this. I like what you're doing. I'm going to make you healthy so that you can continue to, continue to prosper so that, I can, so that I can bless you, that you might be a blessing to others. So this promise of external blessing to the one who's merciful toward the poor is echoed in many places throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 28, 27 says, Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Mm. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to close our eyes to the poor, don't we? The prophet Isaiah famously exhorted God's people that true fasting is not a matter of religiosity, but to share bread with the needy and break the yoke of the oppressor. And after introducing this idea, Isaiah 58 goes on and on to talk about the ways that the Lord will bless those who <coughs> regard the poor. And of course, this blessing does not occur in some kind of mechanical way. I mean, Job was generous to the poor, and he still su suffered an ill fate. But generally speaking, such blessings are explicitly promised in Scripture, and we should not allow... Um, this sort of like enlightenment, post-enlightenment environment where we all kind of think about God in more of a deistic way rather than a theistic way. Deists, they believe that God just sort of started the world and then he doesn't do anything after that. He just sort of watch what, watches what happens. Right? We shouldn't let this world turn us into a bunch of deists that never expect blessings from God, that never expect God to come through on his promises so that we're afraid to lay hold of them by faith. But in asking, how is the one who considers the poor blessed, there's a second and more implicit reason given by the psalm. It's actually here, right in the text. The Hebrew word translated poor in verse 1, dal, does indeed most commonly refer to the material, materially poor. Excuse me. Or even thin, as in malnourished. It can be translated in that way. God's word does not permit us to spiritualize the call to care for the physically poor. Um, you know, this is a, something that I see oftentimes when evangelicals get together to study the Bible. They, we always like to spiritualize, especially in the U.S., where there's um, a, a lot of affluence. We say, well, it's probably talking about the, the spiritually poor. And it's like, no, it's talking about people who don't have food. <laughs> right? So we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't spiritualize uh, all the passages in the Bible that talk about this. However... There is a, an, a, an actual valid reading of Scripture which sees this, this Hebrew word dull can also mean weak or low or helpless, as in, as in being in a humble position. In the book Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, Christopher Wright says, There is often an oscillation between a material and a spiritual meaning of the poor in the Psalms. It seems misguided to insist on the one or the other exclusively. And here's why, he says, the material, material poor are thrown in spiritual dependence on God. Poverty thus serves both as a literal description for the destitute and as a metaphor for spiritual humility. Mm -hmm. So in verse 4, we start to see this, this oscillation from talking about the materially poor, material dependence, and then it oscillates to this idea of spiritual dependence. David writes, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Right? This one who's considering the poor then turns and says, God, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. 
for I have sinned against you. He's in a place of death, is he not? Heal me. He's in a place of sickness. Heal me. Be gracious to me. What makes David sinful? What makes sinful David think that he has any basis to ask for the a holy God for grace? Perhaps it's because he knows that Yahweh loved the poor. Loves the poor. That is the implicit blessing. It means that we are placing ourselves by faith under the care of this kind of God. Or to put it another way around, because David knows spiritually that we come to God with nothing but the empty hands of faith, Lord, have mercy on me. It follows that materially we ought to bless those with just empty hands. You see that connection between the gospel of grace and the way that we're called to treat the poor? Remember last week when I was preaching, we talked about how the shape of our salvation affects the shape of our lives as Christians. Because God blessed us though we were undeserving, we don't look at the undeserving around us and turn a hard heart to them, turn a blind eye to them. Amen? And if we're hard-hearted toward the poor, then we have a misunderstanding of the gospel. The issue is a lot like Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Recall the parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus' point, Jesus' point about that parable, you remember that parable, the unmerciful servant? There's somebody who's been forgiven a, 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 like a bajillion dollars from his master. I mean, I think that's sort of like a, about a literal translation. Yeah. A bajillion dollars. And uh, then he turns around, and somebody owes him $100, basically. And he grabs the person by the throat, and he's like, pay me back, right? And Jesus says, what do you think the master is going to do when he hears that that's the way that you treated the one who owed you $100? And they're like, oh, man, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't understand what God had done for them. If you don't understand what God has done for you on the cross, he's poured out his best. He's done everything. He's given you a bajillion dollars. So how can you hold somebody in your debt for the hundred that they owe you? So showing mercy toward the poor puts the undeserved grace of God on display to the world. It gives flesh to our message. My friend David Troutman, he would be embarrassed if he knew I was going to use him as an example, but I'm going to go for it. He's the rector of Trinity Church in Thomasville, and when he was a student in InterVarsity on campus, he led a group called God's Heart for the Poor. And this group did two things. It had two commitments. They studied what the scripture had to say about God's heart for the poor, and then on the weekends, they went and served the poor together. So it was like, like a covenant group. You couldn't go and serve the poor with them unless you were committed to reading the Word of God. And you couldn't read the Word of God with them unless you were committed to going to serve the poor. The group is called God's Heart for the Poor. And I don't think it's surprising that there were more non-believers in that group than in any of the other groups that we had. Why? Because they were showing the gospel not just in what they said, but in what they did. They said that God loves you even though you don't deserve it. And then they were showing that in their actions. 
Amen? So their actions showed the grace of God, and that was attractive to non-believers. There was something about the gospel that resonated with them because of this group. Sometimes I think we, we think gospel proclamation and mercy toward the poor are in competition, when in fact they are complementary. So finally, number three, the gospel of grace. In 2 Corinthians 8, which we read last week, Paul urges the church to be generous toward their needy brothers and sisters as a proof, quote, proof of their genuine love. He roots, he roots his very material call on their life, not in works of righteousness, that's not, that's not the, the basis, that's not the reason why he says that they need to do this so that they can show God that they can earn God's love for them. No, he doesn't say that. He roots it in the very truth of the gospel. Remember 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which I talked about last week. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He came down from heaven. He emptied himself. Why did he do these things? So that you might be built up. So that you might have eternal life. So that you might gain identity as sons and daughters of God as you believe in the gospel of Jesus. So here we've come full circle and returned to kickball. We talked about last week that we have this impulse to not want to receive from God. Remember we talked about the Apostle Peter who said to, to Jesus on that last that night of the Last Supper, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, and Peter says, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. No, this isn't appropriate. I don't want you to do this for me. I don't want you to serve me. Only I can serve you. And Jesus says, Peter, unless you let me wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter's like, okay, well, they're not just my feet. Just wash my whole body then. <laughs> Peter responds wisely. But this impulse, we, we all have this impulse. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be needy. The great physician comes down from heaven to us and we say, I'm not sick. <laughs> God offers forgiveness and we're like, I'm probably not that bad. But Jesus says the gospel has nothing to say to those who don't need, know they need the grace of God. God has chosen you, the slowest, you, the least, you, the poor, you, the sinner. He picked the last first. He's accepted us on the basis, not of our own righteousness, but of his great mercy. He's taken the small, artless child in his arms and presented him as his treasured possession in the midst of the assembly, just as Jesus does with the small children. He says, whoever receives the child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. What's Jesus trying to teach his apostles? What he, what's he trying to teach about the gospel that the one who can't contribute to the conversation the one who doesn't bring anything, who the apostles are saying, just like, go away. The teacher doesn't have time for you. Jesus is saying, you need to become like this child if you want to enter the kingdom of God. You need to know that you need. 
You need to know that you need so that you can receive what I've come to provide for you. May none of us, may none of us ever divide gospel proclamation from the biblical call to serve the poor, to see the needs of the children, which is a good indication of where our heart is. Every society, the way they treat children says something about their heart. May our church not be hard-hearted or forgetful toward the poor because it would be a shame to lose sight of such a beautiful message that we get to put on display when we remember them. Our God receives the empty-handed. And I just want to close with this. I do think that we're in a season when you're a church plant, there's an extent in which you're, you're sort of, you're not everything you hope to be. And I, that, that'll always be the case as a church. But as we're sort of going along down the path, down the journey, there are certain values we have that are really, really important to us that we're like, man, and we just haven't fleshed this out. We don't see this going on yet, or we don't see very much of this going on yet, but it's still really core to who we are. I want to ask the question, how is our church a blessing to the poor? I know that some of you are blessing the poor on an individual level. I know that there are people who are sacrificially going to visit those in prison. I know that people are giving of their best toward people in their lives. But how, is we as, how can we as a church show forth the grace of God through being a tangible blessing to the poor? To where if our church ceased to exist, the poor would be like, No! <laughs> That's what I want, right? I think that's what the Lord wants for, for his church, that if we just cease to exist, it would affect the poor because that's the way that we're embodying the mercy and compassion of God. So I just want, I just want to, from this word, from this word, Psalm 41, verses 1 through 4, just how can God's word spur our imagination, spur our kingdom imagination as a church? Maybe some of you guys have, get together and have a study and prayer group, you know, study the book of Amos or study um, Generous Justice by Tim Keller or, or some, something, you know, uh, uh, When Helping Hurts or, or some other book which talks about uh, serving the poor and say, how can we begin to embody this more? Um, we're, we're, we're accepted, we're received by the grace of God. Um, as, it, as it stands on the basis of his finished work, but as a result of that, since he's the one who became poor so that through him we might become rich, oh Lord, please help us. Oh Lord, please show us how we can embody that in the way that we live as a church community, Lord. I pray for you to pour out um, ideas that are from you that are not just like cooked up by human beings and, and a result of human striving. Mm. Pour out your Holy Spirit on your servants um, so that we can bear fruit, fruit that would last, so that we can glorify you in this way. Lord, we recognize that we are poor. There's people in this church who are in a very different situation financially from one another, but Lord, we're all poor. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of the great physician. We're all that child we don't have to contribute to the conversation what we need. We're not clever enough, Father. Have mercy on us. Help us to own our need like Peter, Lord. Not just my feet, but all of me, Lord. Wash mm -hmm. us, Father. And help us to show forth your gospel to this hurting world. Mm -hmm. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please take a few moments to meditate on the sermon.